Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, songwriter, producer, and singer for the band Harem Scarum, Harry Hess. We'll be talking about travels and the business of music, the life of a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about his multifaceted career. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Thanks for joining me today. Harry, how are you? I am great, thank you. What does it feel like to be called retro? You're still (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I do feel a little retro sometimes. Uh, But uh, you know what? Kind of wear it as a badge of honor these days, especially with our anniversary, you know, reissues coming out and stuff like that. So uh, definitely spending some time reflecting on, you know, uh, early days of our career and and what we're doing today. And, you know, you kind of get to the point where you're, pretty grateful uh you know we're still around still making music and uh so i i like i said i kind of wear it as a badge of honor these days well good for you and i i've felt the same way as as i've gotten older i'm more grateful and when you when you sing and play out of a sense of gratitude you actually sing and play better i think in some ways i found that anyway <laughs> yeah 100 <laughs> percent. you know uh, when it was life and death <laughs> with regards yes. to, you know, every record that came out or song or single or how it did on the charts and sales. Uh, it doesn't feel that way anymore. You know, we're all very comfortable with where we're at, with what we're doing. So when we talk about, you know, getting together to make a record, write songs or go out and play, it, it really does come from a place of like, we're doing this because we actually want to do it, not because we yeah. have to. So that that's a, a really cool perspective as well. Yeah. And do you remember being on stage, you know, maybe you're touring or something and you got no money and you got, and you're tired and, and you're not sure about the audience and you know, you have that sort of pit in your stomach. Did you ever have that feeling on stage at times? Oh, oh yeah. Um, not, not so much on stage, but before and after, uh, yeah. walking around, uh, everyday real life, you know, uh, I always yeah. tell the story is like, I remember going to a bank machine, uh, in 1991, we finished our first record and I had 50 bucks. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, yeah that was it. I, was, I thought, yeah. Oh, you know, this better yeah. go well. So yeah, 50 yeah. bucks. That was, that was the big fallback. That was the big, uh, nest egg that I had at uh, 21 yeah. or whatever. So but the funny thing too, is that, you know, that you always hear that saying life is short, you know, enjoy the ride, whatever. And then, and then you realize, you know, when you're 21 looking forward, it's like, oh no, no, I got lots of time here. And then when you're, when you're 40 years later, when you're looking back, you're going, yeah, it was a little quick, you know, it's all one plot <laughs> at this point. right? Yeah. 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 I mean, look, I mean, it, there's all kinds of aspects to it. I mean, I, in some sense, I feel like I've been doing this forever because I kind of have been. Um, mm. but, but at the same time, like to your point, it, it just, it goes by so fast. So, mm. um, and it's difficult to enjoy the moments because it's usually, um, tied into a lot of expectations and a lot of things that, you know, can cause anybody anxiety, no matter, yeah. you know, how well you're doing, you know, because then there's the, uh, all the complexities that come along with, even having a hit song or whatever, can you do it again? And then there's, you know, like, so no matter where you end up and how well you do or how well you don't do, there's, there's kind of uh, all this baggage that comes along with it, you know, uh, no matter what. So we're no different. Yeah. And one thing that, that helped allay that for me was the saying that life is a, it's a journey, not a destination. So yeah, enjoy the I mean, journey. We, yeah, we kind of always realized that. So I mean, I, I do think that we 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 had a great time doing what we're doing and still do. So it, yeah. it wasn't like uh, you know, we didn't come out of the gate and sell, you know, 10 million records. You know, everything we did was slow and steady, and I feel that we earned it and we spent a lot of time working on our craft and making records and writing songs and Fortunately, you know, we've had a super long career and have done well and sold a lot of records over this long period of time. So, um, yeah, we, we really did enjoy making records and writing songs and going out and playing. So, uh, we, we can't complain no matter where you think, you know, we landed in this whole thing. We, we got to tour the world and play music for a living. So, and still do. Well, it's funny because, uh, 
you know, when I, when I do interviews, I like to do research and I like to go through the catalog, but your, your catalog is enormous. Like I was just like, holy guacamole, you've been really active for a very, very long time. And between your solo projects and the projects you've produced and the harem scarum stuff and the reissues, I mean, you got tons of stuff going on. Yeah, I think even in our, like we were with a Warner Music Canada for the first 11 years of our career. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point in Japan, we'd already put out 30 releases. And so that included like, you know, best ofs, live records, um, B-sides, video hits and stuff like that. So uh, Japan was just one of those markets for us that, you know, we happened to blow up early. Uh, it was our second record. It was actually Mood Swings, the, right. the 30 year anniversary that we're doing now. Yeah. Um, so 30 years ago, that was the record that broke us in Southeast Asia, specifically Japan. Yeah. And because that market doesn't mind if you put out something new every six months, uh, we were kind of encouraged to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're like, yeah, if, if you like writing songs and you like, making records and putting them out, you go for it. And so we did. And that's why there's so much stuff. It was basically because of Japan. Yeah. Well, very cool. And, you know, a lot of people do say it's a, it's a bit of a numbers game, right? You got to write, you know, write a couple hundred songs and you're going to have a, you know, I talked to a a big record producer one time and he said he'd produced 200 albums. And I said, well, how many of those do you think are really top notch that you like? And he said about five. (laughs) Right. And I was like, Ooh, (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know what, for the stars to align for you to get, you know, in a room with a group of people that have great songs can play great. And then after that great record's done, if it goes to a label that they also have to, you know, be in the right place at the right time, right frame mind, the genre has to be, you know, clicking with regards to, you know, radio, uh, flavor of the month. And like, literally the stars have to align for all those things to be in place for you to have any kind of success. And, uh, it's definitely true. You know, you just have to have a million kicks at the can and that's why just doing it because you like doing it and you love, you know, uh, you know, trying to better yourself and just create something better than the last thing that you did. That, that was the competition, you know, that's what kept us going and just kept us, you know, uh, writing songs and in the studio and then getting back at it again, you know? Yeah. So that, that was really the motivating factor is just to, to try to better ourselves. Yeah, no, you make a good point. And I, I remember I, I was playing snooker one time and I, I wanted to get some snooker lessons. And, and the first thing the guy said to me was you're only playing against yourself. Keep right. that in mind. You can run the table anytime you want. It's your table. You, you know, yeah. you keep it till you give it away. And I thought it really changed my perspective because I thought, well, that's really right. I mean, we talk about competing with others and in some respects, I guess in, in sports and stuff we do, but for creative endeavors, it's only you. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. You know, and look, I mean, we found out quite early is that, you know, if, if you do something specific and you happen to like it or the, you know, the four guys in the band happen to like it, you just need to go out and find that audience around the world. And again, it's not like you're competing with uh, another local band for that same person to like you. Uh, first of all, they can like many bands and and also uh the fact of the matter is is that you know like it's it's taste right so when you know the flavor of the month comes and goes and i and i talk about that a lot only because we got caught up in the whole you know hair hair band thing uh but you know we happened to look and sound like everybody else did at that time they got a record deal and put out records and you know, we, we grew up listening to a certain style of music, but it wasn't the only thing that we liked and the only thing that we could do. So, you know, again, being fortunate enough to hang around long enough, we got to try a bunch of different things and, you know, you find your audience, they stick with you. And if you, you know, are genuine and you show that you're in this for the right reasons, I think they hear that or see it and, uh, they've stuck with us. So still to this day, we have a lot of the fans that have been along for the ride, uh, 30 something years ago. And so, you know, for us, that was kind of, you know, the goal and and we stuck with it. Absolutely. And, and looking at some of your YouTube videos and some of the comments on there, you guys, you have some loyal fans out there who absolutely love you guys and love you. There's no doubt about it. Um, no, cool. So you came out of, uh, you came out of Oshawa in the, in the late sixties. It's funny. I lived right in Whitby there in the late sixties myself. So it would have been- oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually born in Oshawa, but I was, uh, I grew up in Whitby and then Ajax, 
okay. uh, around yeah. that area. And yeah. I've been in Oakville now for like, you know, 27 yeah. years or something like that. So, uh, but, but definitely that, uh, that Eastern mm-hmm. Toronto kind of vibe. Yeah. I knew it so, well <laughs> for many, yeah. many years. <laughs> no, very, well, we moved out to Vancouver. I moved out here with my parents shortly after that. So I was yeah. like, the West coast guy, but so were you like a child prodigy or what, what was your training in your, did you just no. have a natural bent or? No, I mean, like, you know what? I think I had uh, some sort of natural ability for singing, but nothing special in that regard mm. either. I mean, like it just took a lot of work and, you know, if if you're good in your neighborhood, that's one thing. But like, you know, once you become, you know, I don't know, once you start making records and like you you are kind of competing with everybody else on the planet with regards to, you know, uh, yeah. you know, are you good enough kind of thing, right? Because if if you're going to radio and there's only three slots at radio and Van Halen's one of them and ACDC's the other, like there's just the reality of like right. you are yeah. competing on that level when, when there's only so many spaces or only, uh, so many time slots or, or, uh, you know, uh, if you're playing a festival, people want you, uh, for whatever reason they want you, but typically it's, you know, cause you can draw, people and that is all kind of all encompassing because if you're getting played on the radio people come to the shows if people come to the shows you're making money and so it's kind of yeah. like um it's it's all or nothing kind of in the music biz but like when i first started i just loved music and that was it and i specifically love songwriting and so yeah, i okay. think i was more into it from a record making perspective like songwriting making records and then uh, secondarily being a singer. So it wasn't really ever my prime focus. And, uh, uh, it's just, yeah, it was just never really something that was at the top of my Hmm. list. It's just something that I did because I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to make records and write songs. Yeah. So you're primarily a singer. Your voice sounds great. I mean, those songs are super good and your voice is is polished. You got that nice rasp and, and good control and really good. But did you play an instrument as well? You must have oh, yeah. played guitar and piano. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started. I actually started playing drums. Then I, uh, when I first started playing in a band, like in you know thirteen, fourteen years old, I was playing bass and singing. Then uh, you know, always played keyboards at home just for writing songs, yeah. acoustic guitar, writing songs, that kind of a thing. So I play well enough to write songs, but I'm not a lead guitar player by any stretch of the imagination. And then once I hooked up with Pete, uh, you know, uh, I guess I was like 18 years old when I met Pete, 17 or 18. Um, having a guy that can play like Pete, you know, I, I yeah. literally don't need to touch that <laughs> yeah. when he's around. Right. Yeah, it's like, Here, good, Pete, yeah. There you go. You do this. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, good. Well, I mean, everybody's drawn to what, you know, their affinity and if, and if songwriting and, and sort of running things is, is your thing, then you, that's your strength. But I was curious, you, you got a record deal early, right? Like how did, how did you come up and, and end up with a record deal? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, first of all, Darren and I, the drummer, were in a band called Blind Vengeance when I was 15, and we uh, made a record, and that got signed to Attic Records in Canada, which, for those people that don't know, was, I think, one of the largest indie labels in Canada at the time, and they had all kinds of Canadian iconic bands like Anvil, Lee Aaron, uh, Haywire, uh, all kinds of bands. So yeah. that's kind of how it started. So super young for me, 15 years old. And then that failed miserably. And so I started Harem Scarum, I think when I was 17 or 18. And like yeah. I said, that's when I met Pete. Yeah. We were, I, I was just writing songs and recording them. Oh, okay. And I, I happened to hear about Pete through a mutual friend and got him in, uh, I put the band together to basically help me do those recordings. And then the whole thing just kind of took off from there. Okay. Well, yeah. Cause I was trying to do the timeline in my mind and I thought, well, gee, you must've been super young when you got the record deal. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We were all, you know, uh, at, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty uh, cheeky. 19 kind of thing. And then when we made our first harem scarum record, we were 19 and 20 and it came out when we were 21, as far as I remember. Okay. Yeah. Something well, like that's, that. Well, that's, but I was thinking that's pretty cheeky. Like how does a teenager go into a record company and say, Hey, I got some songs. I want to get a record deal. Like, yeah. I mean, it just, you know, just, uh, just no self-awareness with regards to how little we 
uh, didn't know. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You just go out there and you go for it and you think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're good. <laughs> well, it's just I, yeah. bizarre. Yeah. And, and even thinking we were at a long time, I remember feeling like this is taking forever and it <laughs> took like 18 months, right. From writing, <laughs> you know, writing songs to getting a record deal and then, and then yeah. getting that record out. But again, when your whole life is like, you know, I've been alive for 19 years. So a year yeah. and a half of that feels like forever, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Well, I was like the old saying, you know, that that kids will try anything because they don't know what they can't do. That's right. So I, they I just didn't know you couldn't do this. Yeah. yeah. So you just go and do it. And it's like, that's well, I mean, you know, talk to Andy Kim and those guys, Paul Anka and that they all were teenagers when they wrote their first hit song, mm-hmm. you know. And, yeah. And- Which, you know, look, I mean, from a record company's perspective, it's always been the case. Like they, they love young talent because yeah. again, it's like, it's not so pretty when you're in your mid fifties and you're jumping around on stage singing rock songs. If you want to see it, come see us. Yeah. If you want to see not pretty, come see us. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, once you paid your dues, it's fine, but you're right. Like the young talent, they can ride that horse for a long time. Right. Yeah. And and get uh, some payoff. And not sign anything. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess that's right. You throw it against the wall and see if it'll stick. Right. Yeah. The old saying. So, um, so then you, uh, were you doing other stuff too? Did you like, did you get into the studio stuff? Like, it sounds like you were really enamored with the the whole production side of it in the studio. Were you doing studio work or singing on yeah. anybody else's yeah, stuff? Yeah, always or? did that. Always had my little side studio thing going even, uh, yeah, since day one. I was like, okay. you know, 15 years old recording neighborhood <laughs> bands, then oh, started okay. to, you know, just record anybody that would let me record them and all all at the same time as doing our own recordings and getting our own career going. So even when we first signed our record deal with Warner, I was recording other bands and uh, that never ended. Uh, I'm doing a lot less of it now just because I'm doing more. I mean, my main gig is mastering these days, which is, you know, completely different side of it, but still obviously audio related and finishing uh, the finishing touches on making a record. But um, yeah. It's yeah, been oh, right cool. up there with uh, everything else that I've done with regards to kind of time spent or even yeah. things that I'm chasing down or that I want to do. I just love working with, you know, other artists and making records. Well, it really shows in the production values and stuff that you've done too. So, so let me ask you about the, uh, so your debut album came out in 1991 and then of course, no justice. I mean, that, that's really an eighties sort of glam metal. I mean, it's, it's hard. I was trying to think of the genre cause you've been described as you have some classic rock influences, obviously <laughs> the eighties hair metal, the glam yeah. metal you've been called. I'm not sure what, uh, how, yeah, uh, I'm not really sure either. You know, like, I mean, we grew up, you know, uh, listening like you know when we were like 13 14 15 years old we're listening to iron maiden and judas priest but like you know that's what's on the radio at that time you know people aren't aware of that true enough that that was literally on the radio and so i think we're a product of that time and then because we weren't really kind of metalheads in that way uh the more melodic side, uh, the more songwriter-y side of us kind of came out in our earlier recordings. But, you know, Mood Swings was a turning point for us because that's when I started to write with Pete, you know, mm-hmm. like really yeah. started to write with him and him being a guitar player and bringing guitar riffs to the table and interesting musical ideas. That was kind of the perfect fit for me because I was doing, you know, most of the lyrics and melodies at that time. And, uh, you know, like I said, hooking up with Pete was just kind of a, um, and the next level for, for us both, you know, uh, as a, with regards to the sound of the band evolving into what it was on mood swings. So at that point we're like 23 or something like that years old. And that's when we kind of got on the course that we're still even kind of on to today. Yeah. Well, I do like the idea of, of the melodic part of it. Cause some of the, some of the metal can be a little dark and a little monotone and, and, and <laughs> yeah. To me, the yeah. best metal bands were, you know, you think of a White Snake or Scorpions, or you guys were right yeah. in that sort of genre. Yeah, that's got, right. And you know. again, it was just kind of in the wheelhouse of what we were doing at the time. So uh, we couldn't help but being influenced by them. And Def Leppard was a big one for me yeah. too, which was kind of like, you know, in retrospect, very poppy. I mean, they were probably, you know, the the most poppiest version of of what you could think of. But at that time, you just didn't uh, you didn't question it. That was just what yeah. was on the radio, you know. Um, yeah. But but we looked at that and went, oh wow, we 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 could do that. We love this. Yeah. 
That's what we yeah. want to do. And, and so a lot of our production style, a lot of the approach to making records, but, but then it goes all the way back for me, like to the seventies of like queen records where yeah. like I was heavily influenced by queen and, but modern day kind of version of that would have been like the poppy sensibilities of Def Leppard, but you know, the more kind of esoteric approach to record making like queen which was allowable in the 70s but not so much in the late 80s early 90s yeah. just because record companies just weren't interested in interesting stuff they were interested in stuff that sold and so it was all about kind of writing hit songs and that's why in our career we've always uh you know kind of leaned towards uh you know crafting songs that, that kind of could be played on the radio because yeah. uh anything else like you weren't going to have a career you weren't going to make another record so we we had to kind of fall in line there but we did happily yeah no it was good and, and you got nice acoustic guitar breaks lots of great harmonies you got the keys i mean it's it's very listenable melodic stuff which i prefer because i'm not i wasn't really a, a, a thrash metal guy or a heavy metal guy per se but yeah. that's stuff i like so yeah I think yeah. you bridged it quite well. So then, so mood swings slowly slipping away again, really, really 90 or sorry, really eighties looking stuff like eighties, you got the big hair, you got the, the yeah. that look, you got the, the, you know, the, the guitar solos with the, the dive bombs and the tap and whatever else you're doing. It's, it was very 80s or very eighties. So how did you bridge that gap between that into the nineties and the, and the grunge when it hit? Yeah, I mean, well, it, I mean, it was a bit of a shocker for us. I mean, it that the whole, you know, the rug just got pulled on all of that stuff. And, you know, with regards to support at radio, video support, and even label right. support. But, you know, luckily for us at that time, we started doing well in other countries. And, mm. you know, in Europe and in Asia, it wasn't as... Um, you know, for back a, a lack of a better word, like it wasn't such a violent turn on what on what yeah. was, you know. So here in North America, like any band that had any kind of association with that look or sound got dropped. And so they weren't on a major label anymore, like overnight. And I'm sure, okay. you know, anybody that knows that genre in that time knows those stories, right? All those yeah. bands just kind of like, you know, uh, they were shunned from the music business and and then nirvana took over grunge took over and you know oddly enough like you know appreciating music like i liked a lot of that stuff i mean yeah. not all of it but i really liked alice in chains i really liked uh you know some sound garden stuff i uh, love chris Corn cornell's voice and you know so there were lots of things about that that i really liked and yeah. we just kept doing what we were doing and fortunately we kept selling records kept building a fan base around the world and so our record company wasn't about to drop us because quite honestly we were making the money so right. yeah. that's what it came down to we were just doing well yeah so we get to we got to keep going yeah cool so so two good points there one is that the, the monumental shift that took place in north america didn't really happen everywhere else to the same degree yeah to, to the same degree i would say yeah. it's not that it didn't happen it just didn't yeah. happen um you know yeah to that degree so if you went to asia uh, and we did like tons at that time we'd go to yeah. japan twice a year we'd go do right. a promo tour and then we'd go do a real tour and they were aware of what was happening in america but they didn't abandon the bands that they loved like six months ago right okay <laughs> right and, and that yeah. was the same thing in europe i mean you could go do a festival in europe and and you know you could see that the headliner was you know Van Halen or something like yeah. that. But Van Halen at at this point, a, they weren't the cool band anymore. Guns <laughs> and Roses was right. right so yeah. there was a real uh, shift in the way things were going. Or Bon Jovi could do an eighty thousand seater uh, soccer right. stadium yeah. in Europe, but in in North America, yeah, you were one of those guys, right? right. So yeah. we got lumped into that pile here, and, and honestly, it was fine. When you think about Canada, I mean, we love Canada. We're from Canada. We're proud Canadians. But as far as the music industry goes, I mean, Canada is less than 3% of the world market. It's right. not something yeah. you need to be concerned about as far as your career goes. We just happen to live here. And in retrospect, it just kind of make, made us work harder because we were, we were kind of nothing here. You know, like yeah. we were just that band. We put out a couple of songs. Some people had heard of us, but... Yeah in pockets of Europe and Asia, we were, we were having number one hits and selling yeah, lots yeah. of records. Yeah. Oh, very cool. 
Yeah. And the second point, just to pick up on what you were saying is about the, the grunge genre. I, I, we had that exact conversation literally two days ago about you, you can't dismiss a whole genre of music, like no excuses by Alison Chains. It's just a great song. And, and Chris Cornell's voice, like there was some good stuff in there. Yeah. Just, I, I wasn't a real fan. I wasn't a real Nirvana fan and I didn't, I wasn't into the whole grunge thing with the hat on backwards and the sloppy clothes and stuff that really, yeah. didn't, you know, I was more of a glam seventies or eighties guy. Yeah. So, but, um, so how did that in, did that influence you or impact you in any way, as far as your songwriting or the genre that you were, did you adjust to that? You know? Yeah. I think to be honest, we did only because, uh, it, it's it's not like we were doing the first round of songwriting or whatever because it, it it only happened to be what we were kind of climatized to at the time. And again, I know that sounds weird, but uh, if you're just a fan of writing songs and making records, that you, we weren't that married to, let's say, the production style or the way we looked or anything like that. I mean we all cut our hair off and like, we were just going yeah. like, okay, well that was that. And and now we look like this. I mean, we really didn't think too much about it. It wasn't a, like a planned, like it wasn't like we were kiss and had a look yeah. right in that sense. Right. We just kind of looked like everybody else did at that time. And so when that went away and it changed, we easily embraced it and just went, yeah, we, we don't look like that anymore. Nobody does. Right. Yeah, you right, know? Yeah. So that was that for us. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, you build a fan base on a sound and a look and without continuing that to some uh, degree, you're alienating your fan base. And I know that we did that uh, yeah. to a lot of people as we went along because we did records that just sounded like garage band power pop. We did records that sounded kind of grungy at some points, like Metallica meets Queen. Our third record, you know, was the least favorite of our hardcore fans. But then we got all kinds of new fans that were musicians and into weird, dark kind of like, you know. No. more not melodic stuff. So we've kind of tried it all over the years. And, you know, now over the last 10 years, we're just kind of back to what we do naturally, which is, you know, we, we write melodic songs. They're kind of presented in the way of like what you'd think about a late eighties, early nineties band would sound like, because that's yeah. so long ago now too. I'm not even sure what that is, but now it just feels like it's us. It's not even really defined by a, a year or a genre. It's just kind of a, a, a mishmash of all of those things that led us up to where we are today. Yeah. Good points. And, and retro is cool now too, but, uh, so I was going to, it's funny because the mullet, you know, when the mullet came out now, I, <laughs> I came by it honestly, because when you have big hair in the eighties, I said, okay, fine, I'll cut my hair, but I'm not cutting the back. Right. I got it trimmed on the top there. So I, I sort of had a mullet, not for very long, but I think it came about quite innocently because I didn't want to cut off my longer hair. It wasn't super long, but I, so that's why I ended up with the, you know, you look like a, I don't know what, but <laughs> did yeah. you go, did you go to the mullet phase? No, I, you know what? I was actually, I was in Belgium. I was in Europe staying in a hotel. I was there for, I think, uh, I don't know, a couple of months Pete and I were in Belgium making a record, like producing a record for another band. And we're on like the fifth floor of this sweat box that had no air conditioning, like oh, a lot geez. of hotels don't, in the middle of a heat wave in July. And I was like, screw this. Went down the street and the guy literally just grabbed the back of my hair, like put it in a ponytail and cut it off. Oh, so that was my look for about two years. Uh, <laughs> we laughed. I said, I look like a page boy from the 1600s, you know, just as straight across the shoulder, kind of like. Yeah. Somebody took, yeah, just a pair of scissors and cut the, cut the length of my hair. That was it. So that was my look for a couple of years and grew a little bit of that back, but, uh, but never back to the, the giant hair days. Yeah. And then a few years after that, just kind of cut it short to the way it looks now. And I've yeah. had that haircut since my, yeah, like late twenties and here I am 54 now. Yeah. You missed the mullet phase. Well, good for I you. I missed the mullet phase, but I, <laughs> I did embrace the page boy phase go. from the 1800s. I know that funny. there's a throwback. There's a retro throwback. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's funny. So a couple questions. Why, why did you change the name to rubber in Canada? Well, you know, we were still signed to Warner Music Canada at that time. Okay. And, you know, kind of like we've discussed, nobody would touch a band that, well, you know, with that name because I they know, all okay. 
you know, it was synonymous with, you know, that look and that sound, but we weren't really making records like that anymore. We were making kind of power pop records that were just, you know, pure songs, not really dependent on production or a, a certain sound or anything like that. And we were very happy doing that at the time. So somebody at the record company actually uh, suggested it. They said, look, if we go to radio with Harem Scarum on it, like no one's going to play this. Okay. But I bet you if we went and just played this for radio people that they'd like it. And they did that. They just went and said, Hey, here's, here's one of our acts or something. I don't know what they right. told them, but they yeah. didn't tell them who it was. And we, we got an amazing response from, oh, cool. from radio stations. And still back then you got to remember it was all about getting on the radio, right? Yeah, it really sure. was. Yeah. And so uh, that seemed to be important to them. And uh, we didn't argue it too much. They were like, hey, you know what? If you want to come out under a different name here, let's do that. We didn't really think it through very well yeah. because the territories where we're doing really well at that time, they were like, well, no, we're not going to do that. So literally we're harem scarum in Japan, harem scarum in Europe, and we were rubber here. You know? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah just like there's no foresight into oh. into doing that and we just thought oh okay well that that was a bad idea so well, i guess but it, you, you make a good point like the overriding point is a good one because people label you so you want to develop a brand and they know who you are as harem scarum but then that becomes your prison too because they go no 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 we want we don't want the 80s sound that's exactly what happened to us yeah and and to prove the point even going to radio and some radio stations saying, oh, we love the song and we'll play it. The minute they found out that it was us, because we weren't going to lie. Right. You know? Like, I mean, uh, some of them just said, oh, yeah, we're not going to play that now yeah, okay. because of who you were. And yeah. so, you know, you, you learn that, you know, this is not uh, – I mean, it's a business and, and they're all protecting their interests and doing what they think is right. Uh, but that's the reality that you live in. So yeah. uh, even if you're just doing something as frivolous as writing songs and doing recordings and putting it out to the world, it became political and weird and uh, turned into something that we didn't even imagine. So, you know, we have no regrets about it. But, you know, in hindsight, no. telling the story, I'm going like, yeah, it was totally bizarre and weird and I don't know if it was worth it, but it was an interesting uh, experiment and and kind of reaffirmed what you think. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. people, uh, they hear with their eyes sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And vice oh, versa. Right. So yeah. like, look at just, it. And, yeah. But you would thought, think, oh, it's those guys. We're not playing that. Oh, yeah, okay. but Thanks. why would they be predisposed against it? I mean, Andy Kim shared that with me. He said, you know, after, after rock me gently and stuff, he, he just wanted to submit songs and, and they, they, if they submitted it under his name, they would be rejected because they wanted fresh new stuff. So they had to, he had to submit songs under a different name. Yeah. No, you do see that a lot. Crazy. Because again, people have preconceived ideas. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess if we're being honest, we would too. Like if somebody handed you a song and you know them very, very well to do something very specific, you would just assume that that's what you're going to get. And um, right. yeah, but, I mean, it's just, but good is good. You know, yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. If you write a good song, I don't care who it is. You know, it could be Joe Blow yeah. down the street. Who cares? It's no, I agree. Song, but like, you know? not a lot of people share. Well, I don't know if yeah. not a lot, but I mean, like yeah. the world kind of, uh, you know, it does yeah. discriminate with uh, with things like that. So yeah. we, you know, especially in, in a world where, you know, art meets commerce and people try to make decisions based on, you know, Probably yeah. commerce before art, but if it can slot in the way that it fits their narrative, then I guess it makes sense for them. And if it doesn't, well, then they stay away from it. But you're kind of the the casualty of of whatever's going on, you know, yeah. uh, at, at the time within the music business or just, you know, uh, even a cultural shift with regards to music, like like when, yeah. when grunge came out, it's like, like every hair... Every band that kind of got labeled as a hair band or a metal band, like all of those artists were like, and everything they did after that was immediately dismissed as we don't care about you anymore. Yeah, from a from yeah. a uh, like a, a radio record company, uh, much music, uh, what, what's the you know MTV perspective? You know, like right. the the gatekeepers, like the people yeah. that actually help you fuel a career and get you out there to the world. Those people just decided that you're no longer valid and again we never did well enough to actually even be affected by it like right. that was when we put out our first record that week nevermind came out 
or the first, uh, yeah, that big Nirvana record. There's a funny ticket stub of us playing uh, on a Friday night. We had our album release party, and on the same ticket stub, Saturday night's Nirvana. Oh, geez. on the same ticket stub, and wow. uh, it gets passed around a lot. And we laugh about it because I said, "Look, that was a b- Friday night was the beginning of our career. Saturday night was the end of our career." Yeah, well, there. Well, right? that's funny. You know, we had 24 hours of like, uh, you know, yeah. bliss of uh, you know just well, not understanding what it was really was happen. a it really was a seismic shift. I mean, because because much music was running Power Hour, and they had a, like they had run those 80s bands and the big yeah. stages and all the big yeah. lights and the big hair. They'd run that for close to 10 years by that point right yeah with eight or yeah. eight or nine years anyway and yeah, so and, i and guess we, we were just too young to be making records and participate in any of that uh, unfortunately we got lumped into that because yeah. that's right where we made that record and and put it out but um either if our first record would have come out three to five years earlier we would have you know had a very different life and career right and the same yeah. thing if we just would have waited and then maybe put up mood swings or then just been maybe more embraced in that next wave or even part of it it wouldn't have felt like we were just coming at the tail end of something that was being ushered out you know when our career was starting so it was it was a little bit of a weird timing thing for sure fair enough you know and so for let me talk about songwriting for a minute because you're a prolific songwriter i read here that you've you've earned uh, 14 top 40 hits around the world and uh, done really well with songwriting. And yeah. I'm always curious with songwriters because that not everyone is good at that, as you well know. There's lots of guys in, in bands, but few of them are, are good at writing songs. And and then you've got that sort of record company thing where you're chasing hit songs or you're um, just writing, you know, singers and songwriters like to just write songs from their heart and stuff that they like, but the record company wants to monetize that. So yeah how did you balance that between chasing hit songs and writing from the heart and just kind of writing stuff you liked? Well, I mean, you know, um, fortunately I think what I just did innately was commercial, you know, like I didn't set out to, um, write a certain style of song. I think just what came out naturally, um, was, was part of something that you could hear on the radio, you know, okay. uh, whether it was more of the rock metal stuff or even the super poppy ballady stuff or whatever I was doing. If I was writing with a band or for a project, I could easily step in there and just become like another member and kind of okay. get what they were doing and say, hey, we're doing this. We're writing this style of a song, you know? Yeah. So, okay. I mean, if you're doing it every day and you kind of know what, you know, the flavor is and you're just kind of adding to it um and typically songs on the radio if there's one knock against them they're they're all very similar in that sense right like they're very formulaic in the way that like you don't have to be doing it that long to kind of get that there's a formula to it you know and a certain style so you know if you're writing songs and you're pitching it to an artist they 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 actually can be less personal because of the fact that you're pitching it to to maybe one of 20 artists that might want to do it. So the more personal right. you get, the more you're alienating the potential, you know, uh, artists that might want to do it. And so when you break it down, you go, well, why is this stuff on the radio just so, you know, generic? Well, because it was actually written for 20 people, yeah, you know, there you 20 go. different yeah. artists could have done that song. That yeah. was the whole point when that songwriter wrote it or co-wrote it or presented it to an artist that isn't maybe a full-fledged you know, songwriter that has got their own, you know, uh, identity or just even strong as a songwriter. Because again, like we we're saying earlier, record companies love to sign young artists. Young artists typically haven't spent 10 years writing songs. They've spent 24 months writing songs. Yeah. And so how yeah. good can it be? How good can you be when you're 15, 16, 17 at, at a craft that takes people a lifetime to, to nail sometimes right. yeah. they never nail it. So, um, so all those things were kind of you know going on at that time and again that is where I put 90% of my focus because it made sense to focus on songwriting for what I was doing in Harem Scarum and also made sense to focus on it if you're going to work with other bands that's what you can bring to the oh. table if you're a producer engineer but you also understand song structure arrangement and what's good and what's not uh, that's really what it boils down to I mean it's taste you know there's no there's no magic to it other than 
you know, it's a craft that you can work at and learn. And then other than that, what makes you work on this song idea versus that song idea? Well, hopefully there's something in your head that goes, this one's crap and this one has potential or this one's really great. Let's work on the really great one. But, yeah. you know, that that's that's up to you, right? So we've always been super hard on the songwriting process and just kind of wouldn't finish anything that we didn't think had potential or was great. And and you know, even when you approach it that way, half the world will tell you this is terrible. Oh, and, yeah, sucks. and you know, even when you think yeah. it's great or you've got something, but you know, you get it out to a world of people and then, you know, there's eight billion people out there and yeah. somebody, if you like what you're doing, someone else will kind of feel the same way. And that's that that was the measure for us. We just had to like it, me and Pete. Yeah. And if one of us didn't like it, we didn't finish it because we thought well, out of two people in the room, maybe half the world doesn't like it if one of yeah. us doesn't, you know? So that was, that's still to this day, the measuring stick for us is that we just both have to think it's a good idea and we both have high expectations yeah. and I think good taste on, you know, what, what's good and what isn't. Well, I went through your, a lot of your catalog and there's lots of great stuff on there. I mean, and, and thoughtful stuff. It's the reason I ask from a songwriter's perspective, like, you know, talk to Jim Valance or someone like that. I mean, he's mercenary. Like some, some songwriters are, are really mercenary about it, right? Just, yeah. I'm going to put out whatever, whatever I'll adjust to an artist or whatever. Or, um, you talk about formulaic, you know, a friend of mine, a guy that I know uh, out here, he had a success with a song and the record company basically said, we want 10 more songs like that. Yeah. And he goes, well, I don't, that's not the way I write. I'm not going to want me to ghost my own songs and, and write songs. I mean, like, like with Maggie May and, and you wear it well with Rod Stewart, right? Yeah. Basically the same song. I mean, it's, they're so similar. You could sue yourself for writing the same song twice. Yeah. Yeah. So how much yeah. of that, you know, how does that go through your mind? At the end of the day, it's really, it's, it's just so tough because the, the two, you know, Commerce in music, you know, the two twain shall never meet <laughs> or shouldn't, yeah, but go. they have to, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic with regards to, you know, what record companies are dealing with and, and what they're trying to do. And if something works, uh, the mindset is do it again. Right. So right. that's where right. that comes from, uh, where they're saying, if this hit, if this song was a hit, with this formula, just do that again and keep yeah. doing it. But I don't know a lot of artists that had a career just doing the same song over and over again and that lasting for any amount of time. You know, yeah. like ACDC have kind of made the same sounding record over <laughs> and right. over again, right? You know, yeah. one of the few examples that sonically, point. Yeah. Uh, from a songwriting perspective, arrangement is the same thing. But, you know, I wouldn't compare most people to, you know, an iconic band like ACDC. Like, it's just not not a wise choice, you know. So for for the rest of us, like, we kind of have to think outside of the box. But if you go too, out far, uh, too far outside of the box, then, again, you're alienating what people like about you, you know. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, so it's, it's a tough thing. And even at our stage, you know, we've put out 15 or 16 full length studio records and for us not to repeat ourselves is very difficult. Well, fair enough. But yeah. then if you're just going to make the same record over and over again, well, it's no fun and we have no interest in doing it. So you kind of have to find some sort of spark of creativity and a reason to finish the song that, uh, that is more than just about doing it again. You know, so that, yeah. that is a challenge for sure. And look no at doubt. the bands that completely rebranded. I mean, look at uh, David Bowie from the seventies to the eighties or ZZ top, you know, there's, there, there's a, a handful of bands that completely transformed themselves and their writing style and their presentation to the world. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because again, like, I mean, somebody along the way, either label management or even the artist will say like, this is necessary for us to kind of, you know catch the new wave, you know, of, of, you know, just what's happening in music. And a, a lot of artists are like, yeah, they're, they're all about that. They don't want to do the same thing over and over again. It's just typically the fan base won't let them, right. Yeah. You know, you love them because you did this and we want you to do more of that. Right. right. Yeah. But for, you know, so I think they're, they're the exception, not the rule as well. And you're right about ACDC. You make a good point because they have a formula that works for them. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if you buy an ACDC album and yeah. it doesn't sound like ACDC, that's it. It's Yeah. And maybe nowhere, you can right? name 10 artists <laughs> over the last, like, you know, literally 70 yeah. years, like, you Very know, true. since the fifties that can 
say that, you know, that we've made a career doing X and we don't veer from it and we don't have to, and people keep coming. And, uh, but you could even argue they haven't had a hit in X amount yes, of years. It's been a while. It's been a while. Not yeah. a knock against them, but it's kind of the truth, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's right. Yeah. For sure. So let me ask you about artificial intelligence because I had a big forum discussion uh, just recently on that because, uh, you know, my, my argument was it's going to sort of, it's going to completely change songwriting and, and music, the music business, because, uh, these machines will be able to generate new melodies and new lyrics and, and even mix parameters on, on albums and stuff like old, you know, Steely Dan albums and stuff. They'll be able to <laughs> yeah. do all of that. What's your, what's your view on that? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're at the beginning stage of something probably pretty revolutionary with regards to AI and just the way things are, uh, done. Um, you know, it's, it's not like it's totally new. There, there are aspects of it that have existed in, you know, uh, record making for quite some time, but not to the degree of like, it's available to everybody, you know, like, if you even type in a subject in the chat GPT and you ask it to write two verses for you, uh, here's the song title, here's the, you know, here's yeah. the synopsis of what I would like this to be about. It'll spit out some pretty good stuff. Now, again, I would use it as a jumping off point where I'm saying, oh, this gave me some great ideas. But, you know, in the past, there's been lots of ways to kind of, you know, get ideas and, you know, research things, look up stuff. And this is just a really quick way to focus, um, you know, whatever thoughts or, or whatever you kind of want to bounce off this thing. I said, you know, to somebody the other day, we were talking about this very subject and I said, it's kind of like another co-writer, you know what I mean? Like you've kind of got another guy in the room now that's feeding you some, right. some information yeah. where you might just go, Oh no, that's totally off the mark. But again, I feel it's going to come down to taste, right? It is going to come down to would you want to say that? Well, yeah, here's, here's 30 things you could say about this subject. You know, do you want to say this in the verse or do you want to say that? So there are your options and they always existed. And unless you had no clue of, uh, you know, how to articulate what you're thinking, um, it's, it's going to be, I think just a quicker way to get there, you know, uh, from a musical okay. perspective, so I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that about everything but uh, as far yeah. as music and record making goes i think it's just more options that can you can help you get there a little bit quicker and give you some ideas that maybe you wouldn't have thought of or would have taken you three weeks to think of that line i don't know okay so that's a fair point but then if you look at the the music part of it like we could be going from the horse and buggy to a to a mach one race car here if, if for yeah. example ai could scan all the known melodies i asked john capek about this about the saturation in songwriting and he yeah. figures it's getting saturated but so the ai could scan all the known melodies and write unique melodies and know that they're unique melodies right away and someone could sit at home and write thousands of these or millions yeah. of these potentially and they'd <laughs> yeah. all be unique melodies what some of them would be good you're right you'd have to discern some of them would be good some of them wouldn't but it's really going to squash the creative enterprise of the human being writing songs no um yeah to a certain degree i mean you know when you say uh, I, I mean i've always been of the mind that um there are only so many things you can do there's only so many notes and so many chords notes, and, right? and even within those limited amounts of notes and chords there's only so many that you can string together that are actually musical you know mm. um in the sense that that's something you hear on the radio every day and i'm I, and and maybe some of your listeners are aware or they're not but you could almost play the same chord progression to 90 percent of the hit songs that are out there right now on the radio you know it's just an inversion of whatever chord sequence that you're hearing you know it might be in a different key or a different tempo or the production's different but you're basically listening to those same chords over and over again and there's a reason for it and that's why i think ai if given all the information and it's dissecting everything that is ever heard or put together with relation to, uh, you know, how to put together a hit song or a hit chord structure or whatever, that mystery has been solved a long, long time ago. And there were algorithms that were doing that 10 years ago with chord structures right. yeah. and things like that. So um, I, I really don't know. I don't know. But like the interesting part about it is like ownership with AI is like, so, you know, 
If you're taking a Drake track and a weekend track and you're shoving it together and you're making a new track, who actually owns that? Because I mean, you know, just derivatives of, of things that already existed. They, they're not yours. You've just asked it to create something. So, I, I mean, I'm fascinated with uh, where this is going with regards to ownership and copyright and just, yeah, all that stuff in general. So it's the wild, wild west and uh, it, it's going to be a wild ride and it's going to happen quick. For sure. Yeah, that's that's uh, what we don't know. It's the unknown that we that we haven't got. But you, you make a good point about the as- assistance. Like like there have been ways of assisting for a long yes. time. I just uh, to me this is a quantum leap. Is, is the is. way I see it. It is no yeah. doubt. There's no there's no getting around that. There's no reason to downplay that. This is huge. And you know, like even in mastering, which is like I said, what I do all day every day. Uh, there's been mastering assistants. Uh, for years, like where you put the music in, uh, an algorithm does all the adjustments based on, you know, quote unquote, what a hit song should sound like with re- like sonics, right? Yeah. Is there too much bottom end? Is there not enough? Does it need compression? Is it too compressed? More limiting, less limiting, more top end, less top end. And it yeah. just figures out where the sweet spot is for that particular thing that you fed it. And right. now when I listen to it, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's just way off the mark because it missed the point, you know? So if you're looking at anything artistically and it is subjective, there is that human interaction where you're going to have to decide whether this is for you, if this is the right taste. But I will say that 90% of the people that are maybe just recording at home, they don't, they haven't spent enough time critically listening to music or masters to make that decision. This is an awesome option for you. You now went from, you know, if you're trying to get from zero to a hundred, you already got to 60 and with, with little to no effort where before it would take you five years to get to 50%, right? So this is a huge leg up for people that are just starting from nowhere. But look, I can say that about so many things that I'm interested in that I haven't put the time in where I can just go to YouTube and watch a professional explain to me, you know, whatever, even if it's like how to fix a dishwasher. So there's lots of things like that where like, you know, you're just being aided and assisted along the way some sometimes for better or for worse but still like you need to have some sort of common sense i think to apply to it and when you're dealing with art it is it does come down to taste you know well yeah again fair point that there's always going to be a human factor but the so the analogy i used is you know if you have a sore back and a robot rubs your back and your back feels better you don't really care right, right. It, it doesn't need to be a human if, if a no. robot can massage your back and you feel good so so what i'm saying is that if people take the mixed parameters of say let's say a steely dan album and they generate through ai another steely dan album and people like it no one's going to care no that's right and and again maybe maybe there's people out there that just uh you know, are casual listeners. And there's so many of them because look, there's a lot of genres of music just based on the fact that they're casual listeners. They're not listening for the purposes of enjoyment of music. They're just, they love it as background music. They love it as this, like it's an accessory for them. It's not a necessity in the sense that this is what I really love. And it takes me to this, uh, amazing place like, like music can. So, um, again, all these kind of varying degrees of, uh, of, of listeners that might have a feeling about it or might not, you know, there's a lot of genres that are specifically based on, I love this specific thing. And it's a subgenre of, of something, but there aren't a lot of people that are into it. So maybe there's just more categories now that will be kind of enhanced. Um, you know, uh, with, okay. with AI and, and look, I mean, I, I, I don't mind the idea at all that people, there's maybe a level playing field now where before you had to have a lot of money to get into a studio, to work with a producer, engineer, all this gear, that's all gone now. Like you can really create something great on your laptop at home. All the professionals I know, we, we all work at home on our laptops now as well as we know how to use the old gear and all that stuff too. But new people coming up, they don't need to go through that or the expense of it. But right. the thing that you lose is the interaction with people that have been there before, you know, is it's like trying to 
figure out everything on your own, but maybe AI is your teacher and maybe AI is that extra person in the room that kind of has a wealth of knowledge that they can, that AI can bring that to the table quickly. I don't know what anyone's going to do with it though. Like, I don't know. Like it's just, well, it could be the greatest thing ever. It could be equally a, tra a train wreck. You know, we went from making records on analog with no pitch correction, no way to save any uh, bad performances to being able to save the, uh, the worst performance ever. We can put people in tune in time. We can generate everything, uh, you know, synthetically that used to have to be organic. And I would argue that we're making worse music today than we were 20 <laughs> years ago or 30 years ago. So yeah. I, if, if you know, but if you said to me when I'm making records on a two inch tape and I've got to sing every word in tune, go, Harry, there'll be a time where you don't need to sing every word in tune. Uh, you don't even need to put it like, you know, in time. Yeah. There'll be an algorithm or a program or an application that can do that for you. Just get in the ballpark. You know what I mean? I'd be like, I would be like, that is going to be the most amazing thing ever. And now that we're here, it's not the most amazing thing ever. I can still suck because my idea sucks. And now that we're inundated with people that are on the same playing field, no one's blown away by it. You know, if I heard a great demo in the 70s or 80s, I'd, I'd be like, wow, how did you do that? Because not anybody could just go to a studio and make a great sounding recording. Now everybody can go make a great sounding recording. It's almost like, what's your excuse if you can't, you know? So it's weird, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of backwards, you know, of, of what you think it would be, but it just comes down to taste and what well, you're- I appreciate that perspective. I think, I think, I hope that you're right you know, when, when the livery stables were, were promoting horses and the, ho and, and the cars came in, there was a lot of people that owned livery stables that said, no, I'm just going to keep riding my horse and I'm going to keep uh, the livery stable yeah. going. And yeah. eventually history just pushed them out. Yes. Yeah. Had, you know, yeah, no, I'm look, I'm a big believer. I always say tech wins. Um, it's just that maybe, you know, uh, at, at my age, I'm, I'm just less worried about it just because where I am in my life yes. and career that I'm just happy to kind of keep going, doing what I'm doing because, Hey, you know, I can without yeah. a lot of consequence, but if I was like 25 or 30, I'd probably be a lot more concerned about it. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, fair. I just wanted to get your take on that. Cause you're obviously been in the, the game for a long time and you're a producer and, and you know, the, the old studios, like there's still a lot of studios around. I was at the armory last week recording in Vancouver and, oh, yeah. uh, but some of them are, you know, some of the other studios have gone by the by, right? Because it's just not, the, the money's not there. The big record company money is not there now. And people are recording at home, like you said. Oh, absolutely. And again, like, you know, that's been going kind of hand in hand. Uh, and again, it's genre specific. You know, if I'm doing dance music or even mixing something now, I don't need to be in a $2,000 a day room to mix a track. You can do that uh, in a different space. And there's all kinds of amazing things that allow you to do that. I mean, you know, there's headphones that can simulate being in a large studio. Are they yeah. great? And do they work? I mean, from my perspective, no, they're not. Like They're not there yet, you know? And yeah. so I might be more skeptical about it, but also the first kind of guy to embrace technology and move forward with it. And I'm, I'm always like, you know, into the cutting edge of what's happening. And I, I'm, I'm not a naysayer. I don't poo poo technology at all. It's, it's the opposite, but also have the perspective of going like, is this better though? Right? Like right. people still want quality. And if you're chasing, you know, just, uh, something, you know, that's maybe kitschy or cool or new, that's one thing, but there's a lot of things that have come and gone that haven't really caught on, uh, from many perspectives, but, you know, uh, I, I think for me right now, if I look at technology, I say it's an amazing tool and that's how I use them. Like they're just tools in a toolbox, but it's still up to me to put something great together. If you hand me a hammer, nail, saw, uh, even if a robot could do it for me, I still have to kind of tell it how to do it or what it should yeah. look like, or if that's good or what isn't, I don't know. I mean, just spitballing, you know, the, the analogies, but, but I haven't really seen anything compelling yet where someone put something together. I go, that's incredible. And no human could have done it, you know? Yeah. Okay. No, you make good points. I appreciate it. I wanted to get your perspective on that because it was something at the forefront of my mind. And it's funny you say that because a good friend of mine who's uh, in his sixties now said that exact thing. I'm glad I'm not 30. Yeah. No, I've it's had, true. You know, it's true. Yeah. I would be probably yeah. re uh, thinking everything. <laughs> yeah. 
So then I listened to the song, The Death of Me, that was just reached, that was just the last few years. And, and that production is fantastic. Like really good. Great. Love the Les Paul sound. They get excellent production. Nice melodic, your voice, raspy voice, really great chorus hook. So you got all the elements there. Was that done? That's done in your, in your studio, right? The, uh, yeah. Vespa. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a traditional analog, you know, studio that's live drums, uh, you know, all Sounds humans great, playing on that really good. in that sense. But, you know, um, even Pete, like, you know, he'll do like all of his guitar solos are done at home, but like, but again, what's at home? Like he's yeah. got quality instruments. He knows how to play. He knows how to record what he needs to do. Um, I've been doing vocals in my home studio for 20 years, even yeah. longer. Okay. Uh, because my studio would get booked and I wouldn't book my own studio just to rec record my vocals. Right. Yeah. So the studio turned into a place where you had to go to do everything to a place where you went to do live drums. Uh, bands would get together to kind of cut live off the floor or do things that you needed a space to do it. So the recording studios turned into a place for people to gather to do whatever they need to get done. Right. But it doesn't mean yeah. you can't do those things elsewhere yeah and that's exactly um, that's exactly drums, yeah drums yeah. are a tough one and i did mix yeah. that record on an ssl did you um, okay but i also mix you know at home on a on a laptop or like uh, a computer that i could you know uh like a, a a mac mini where i could walk out the door with the whole rig in five minutes right and i don't honestly feel like i'm disadvantaged sonically okay. by by going that route or either you know if you're capturing the tones you want you're recording the parts that you like and you've got it down uh, it's just a matter of balancing and kind of knowing how to get it over the finish line and you can do it a bunch of different ways yeah okay well i i would recommend to any of our listeners to, to listen to the death of me it was 2020 you put that out was that uh three, yeah three, that sounds right yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Yeah, I mean, march 2020 yeah. yeah just fantastic really really good and so I, that's why i wanted to ask you about the production of it because because it, it's it's top notch but again i was wondering how much of it is in a big studio like i did the exact what you just said we went to the armory did the live off the floor drums most of the bass some guitars lots of keys but that's it three days in there you spend a big pile of money and then you go home and do the rest of it right that's right. And again, like, you know, that's a band scenario, right? That's a yeah. rock. So it's genre specific. It's like specific to the, you know, the people that are working on it. So if you're a, a solo artist and you're programming drums, there's no reason to show up at that studio. Right. There, you go. there just isn't, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you do need a, a proper listening environment. You need to know that when you're making decisions that you're making the right ones. So um it comes down to that as well, right? Do you, do you know what you're doing and what you're listening to and the decisions you're making? Are they the right ones? And all those little million decisions that you make, making a record all the way from, you know, recording the kick drum all the way to the, all the way to the final mix. Um, everyone, and there's thousands of decisions that you could make or not make. And all those things will, uh, kind of add up to what you get in the end. And so, you know, it kind of speaks to doing it for this long is that you, you have an idea of the end effect of the, the things that you're doing before you get to those stages. So if I'm recording drums, I, I kind of know how they're going to sound and I know how I'm going to mix them. And we even got to the point where we were doing song arrangements, knowing how they s translated sonically, you know, because things sound a certain way. The things that you do sound a certain way. And I mean that from an instrumentation standpoint, from a playing standpoint, it's just certain things sound a certain way. And when you're aware of that, you kind of even work it into the songwriting process, you know, like this is going to sound like this because this is how we're writing this part, you know? So uh, it took a while to get there, but well, and I, again, I think we're there now. You yeah. know, you're the kind of person too, like you're, you're going to be, uh, for the lack of a better expression, a dying breed because people that grew up, you know, with two inch tape and cutting your teeth and singing everything. And then you went through the eighties, and then into the nineties and stuff, people nowadays, the young people nowadays won't have those same experiences from yeah. sort of cradle to grave or, or you, right. You finished right to the mastering stage too. So you've done everything from recording the first kick beat to mastering it. 
yeah, everything yeah. in between. And, and again, like I, I always just wanted to know every process of, of record making and it kind of led me here. But I've always been into it, even when we were, you know, mastering our first record for Warner. You know, I always wanted to go along. I went, you know, flew to either LA or New York to work with, you cool. know, the best in the world at the time. Yeah. And uh, always an amazing experience. And I just thought, oh, this is such a cool final process and it and it matters so much you know because it's the way the records interpreted or felt or heard or or all those things together and uh so now at this point in my life i kind of you know i've done all those other things i spent years just mixing records as well so to get to the point where i feel confident enough that i could start mastering and now i've been doing that for 15 years so cool well that's uh, really good yeah yeah cool little process I have two quick questions for you, um, if you don't mind. Um, What would you do differently if you could do your career over again? What did you make some mistakes or maybe miscalculations? Uh, Yeah, you know what? I mean, honestly, no regrets. And I mean that in the way that, you know, everything led somewhere else. And even the mistakes, uh, you know, we we learned from them. I, I kind of, you know, am mindful of the things that kind of went wrong and try and fix it for the next time. So, no one's going to go out there and just nail everything all the For time. Sure. That's not life. That's yep. not anyone's career. And so it's kind of how you deal with the rejections or the things not going well. And I, you know, happily used it as a learning experience. It's not that obvious at the time, but in retrospect, it is. Yeah, it's not so fun at the time, but yeah. uh, but now in retrospect, I'm, I'm no regrets on any of it. Yeah, good. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, some people come to a fork in the road so you can sign with one or the other, or they make a bad decision that one lady fired her manager and said it was the worst decision she ever made. You know, when uh, people, right? You know, yeah, we we never did anything that dramatic, to okay. be honest. And yeah. if we did, if if things happen to us that are in my memory, they're they're good things. You know, yeah, like good. Japan for the first time ever and stuff nice. like that. Yeah, yeah, like really cool stuff. And then the last thing you got lots going on, right? You're still fully engaged. I mean, your, your, your catalog, I would encourage people to go and look at uh, your website. You got Harry Hess, uh, uh, net, and then you've got net. There's tons of stuff. I mean, you're so prolific and, and you're still fully active. Yeah. The harumscarum.net is, is something like we don't really spend a lot of time updating those things. Uh, yeah. My mastering website is, uh, for anyone's in, in, interested, it's hbombmastering.com. Okay. Um, and uh, that, that's that got the projects that I've, you know, my ongoing mastering projects on it and harumscarum.net, like you mentioned. And then the newest thing that I'm involved with is something called Sing Market. So singmarket.com, that's nice. S-I-N-G-M-A-R-K-E-T.com. And that's where we just re-released the uh, the 30 year anniversary of Mood Swings. Yes. And cool. what's cool about that is, is it's kind of like cutting edge tech in the sense that we're, we're minting music nfts but we're marrying marrying them together with a physical product so nice. if you go and you buy the 30 year anniversary vinyl of mood swings it's actually minted as an nft on the blockchain as well so mm. some really cool stuff there happening over, yeah. over at sing and um yeah I'm, I'm really into that and launching that and doing that for more artists as well yeah, cool well, one of the cool things about doing this podcast is I get to revisit certain catalogs and talk to people like yourself and stuff. And, uh, you know, I've been impressed more than, than not at times. And with you going through your stuff and uh, the things that you've done, really impressive. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anytime. Many thanks to Harry Hess for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible life in the music business. More information, as we said, harryhess.net. And then you have Vespa Music Group as well. That's vespamusicgroup.com. Lots of information, active on Facebook. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare.